Hi, I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited for today's episode. Uh, unfortunately, John isn't with us today, but I am joined by the fantastic Jessica Ayala. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So Jessica, uh, I know from school at School of the Arts, uh, and Jessica is a props master and props artisan, props designer, everything properties related. So today we're going to talk about what the hell a prop is, because I think those of us in the theater have a conception in our mind about what a prop is, and maybe those of us who aren't have an idea, but uh, I think we're going to learn that uh, it encompasses a lot of things that we probably weren't thinking about when we envisioned a prop in our mind. So Jessica, I want to start by asking you, what is a prop? So the short answer is a prop is anything that an actor touches. Uh, and then the long answer is everything that no one else wants to deal with. So for props, um, you know, generally you're taught that, you know, like a, a, a cup is a prop or a chair is a prop. But in my experience, we've also had things like a moped be a prop and a sheep was technically under props. Even though we had animal handlers, it was still our problem. Um, special, some of the specialty things that happen on stage, uh, special effects are usually under props. So we've had, I've worked on a show where we've had like a, a pot with a live fire in it that gets started that usually that fell under a prop, even though we had a pyrotechnician come and show us how to build it. It ended up being kind of something that we would do uh, food, anything that actors eat on stage, those are props. Um, and that could be, you know, chicken wings. It could be, uh, uh, potato. It could be uh, uh, carrots that are look that look like fries. We have to find really clever ways to also deal with people's dietary restrictions. Uh, Trying to think of other very weird things that are props. This, I mean, that's pretty much it. It kind of, a kind of anything that's not attached to the set, and if something really special needs to happen on the set, it ends up being a prop. I'm curious when it comes to food, like. Are you guys having to actually cook and make and prepare that food? Or are you figuring out where you would acquire that food from? It really depends on the show. Um, sometimes it can be something as simple as like, oh, I need to order, you know, four cakes for this week's production of whatever. Um, and I can order that from, I, ha I have the money. So, okay. So it also has to do with money. If I have the money and I can buy the thing, then I can go to a place who specializes in making that thing and just buy it. If I don't have the money or if I need to make it very specifically, then a lot of the times it's uh, the prop runner who is the person who, who sets the props and runs the show for our department. Um, they are making, making the actual food. Um, so for example, one of the last shows that I worked on before the pandemic was called Hot Wing King by Katori Hall. Um, it was a beautiful show about uh, two men and their like chosen family that lived in Memphis. 
that were um, entering into the this hot wing competition. And it was it was a beautiful show just about black love and kind of this this group of men coming together to enter this contest. It was like wonderfully funny and wonderfully sad. But the but uh, the biggest part of of props for that show were making a bunch of hot wings. So we had uh, to figure out a couple, and there was very specific recipes in this show where it was like, there's lemon pepper wings, dry and wet. There was regular buffalo, there was blueberry wings, like there was all kinds of stuff. And so one of my jobs was, uh, was kind of going through rest. Oh, and this garlic Parmesan one, that was really good. So uh, one of my jobs was to go through recipes and kind of find like, how do we make, these wings uh, for the actors. And first of all, do they all eat meat? That was kind of one of the things, but luckily I think the playwright and the director early on had to ask the actors like, hey, we can't really do this show if you guys don't eat meat. So like, does anyone have any issues? I think one of the actors was a vegetarian, but he decided like he could do this for the show, which was really good. Cause otherwise we, Yes. And, and there are times where actors uh, can't make sacrifices because they, you know, they really can't change that restriction. And so we have to figure out things. So we were prepared to kind of figure out, you know, how do we figure out how to, how to work around that? But luckily we didn't have to. Um, so, so part of my job was figuring out how do we make these wings uh, for the actors that taste decent enough for them to eat every night but is not a big slug for the prop runner to make and so I had like I think a few different recipes going where it was like I had the real way of making it like the full way of doing it and then so we knew what it should taste like and then I did substitutes and like different kinds of dressings and different things that we could do to make it easier so like for the lemon pepper I like made it the full way the first time and then for my secondary recipe, I was like, oh, there's like lemon pepper dressing here at the grocery store. Like, does this, is this enough? Like, will this taste good enough? Like, can I just put a little garnish of green onions on top and it looks the same and tastes good enough for the actors to eat? So. Well, I imagine that that look is a big part of it. Cause if you say you're making a blueberry wing as an audience member, I'm never going to taste that wing. I don't know what it's going to taste like, but it, it needs to identify as the blueberry wing to me. So I imagine that's a, that's a huge challenge. Yeah. It, it, and that's why it was important to do the first recipe to see like what this actually would be and then kind of prop ourselves and be like, okay, how do we make it look like that? But maybe it's not, you know, the blueberry one was cool though, because really all you had to do was a, we made like a blueberry comp, not compote, but we just kind of like crushed it up, let them marinate overnight. And then they came out pretty blue. Um, nice. And then we, you know, we were a big fan of the air fryers for that show. Cause you can really, you can air fry a lot of wings. So and it was quick. So it, it was, it was a really fun, that one was one of the more fun ones to like figure out how to, how to make this work, you know? Okay. So, I know this isn't a food podcast, but I have to ask like, when it comes to this, where are you preparing this food? Like, do the theaters have kitchens that you're working in? Or are you having to prepare this at home and then bring it to the theater? Um, I, I, I have been lucky enough to work in a few theaters that have good facilities um, because they're, you know, I've, I've worked at the public theater, which has a lot of space. 
Um, I've worked at Signature Theater, which by the time I got there, had just reopened a new space on 42nd Street in 10th Ave. Um, they used to be at Pershing Square, which is across, just like on 42nd, but across town. And um, so they had, you know, a prop kitchen, something was built. Uh, Lincoln Center, I don't know if I ever had to, we did have to make food for that too. Most most of the spaces have some some sort of prop room or prop kitchen or just area where you could prepare stuff. But there are some times where you have to prepare things at home and bring them into the theater, um, especially if you're working at a smaller one. I personally never had to do that. But for this specific show with the wings, we had a prop kitchen to prepare that in. But at the same time, it's not a full kitchen. It's more just like a clean space. Mm-hmm. So you don't have like an oven. You don't have a, sto- a burner. Like we had to have like hot plates and figure out clever ways of like, like I was saying, using an air fryer having a, a, a warmer to keep the food warm. Cause you also don't also a big part of our job in general is safety. I would say that's probably the number one thing that anytime we're building any kind of prop or have any, anything that could be potentially hazardous to the actor and potentially hazardous means, you know, physical hazards. Like if you have a, even if you have a fake knife or something, you want to make sure that there's no way an actor could hurt, harm themselves on it. Or uh, if they need to be chewing on a blood pack or something, you have to make sure that it's something that's easily poppable for them, that they're not going to choke on. You know, there's hazards like that. Food hazards also, like you don't want someone to, these are hot wings, so you don't want someone to get sick from salmonella or something like that. Um, so that's another part of our job. And you want to make sure that you prepare things uh, in a way that is going to keep your actors safe because at the end of the day, they're trusting you with a lot, you know, they're trusting you to make sure that that thing works perfectly and the same every time. And that you're going to do your job to the best of your ability to keep them safe. And, you know, that's another part of it too. So we always have to figure out clever ways to make sure that we can prepare food uh, in a safe manner too. Yeah. I imagine you're very conscious of those issues, but probably don't have the health inspector coming in to, to check up on you. No, definitely not. So you, you kind of alluded to it in your original description of it essentially being everything that anyone else doesn't want to deal with. But I imagine that leads to kind of gray areas between like, say, costumers and set designers as to what's going to fall under props and what's going to fall under their purview. And I'm curious to know, like, if there are any sort of common things that you run into that you would think that should be the other person's issue, but that you end up having to deal with. And also, you know, who gets to make that call? Like, do you just have to deal with it? If this, like the set designer says, no, I'm not making that chair. Like what's the protocol here? Uh, I wish there was a protocol. That would be, (laughs) that would be awesome. I mean, what, what I learned in school one of the things I learned in school that is so not how it works in the real world, but is like, I always thought that like, okay, if an actor walks in, is supposed to be walking in wearing a costume, like a hat or a bag, then that's a costume, right? But if the actor has to pick it up in the middle of the scene, then it becomes a prop, right? That's not how it always works. <laughs> a lot of the time you have to like, if there is anything, so when, when you're doing your initial read of the script or your secondary read of the script, because that's when you are like picking out things that are props or picking out things that are those gray areas, um, 
you kind of you kind of keep a mental note of those things of like okay okay so this says that this actor walks in with a satchel and uh some glasses all right so that's something that i should kind of mark or asterisk to the side to say hey let me talk to the costume person if they have a really particular like feeling on how it should look or what era or anything like that generally you know your costume designer will say okay I'll take care of that um if they don't really care then sometimes that falls onto props um it will especially fall onto props if the bag has to do something special so you'll still have to get input from the designer as to like what they want um but if it has to do something special like sit open in a crazy way or pop open or something has to like glitter has to fly out of it uh then that'll be you but that'll be the prop person um with the set because because uh formerly set and props uh essentially used to be the same job so that's the other thing too if i don't know if people know but like props is a pretty being a prop designer as like a separate or prop supervisor we're trying to There's conversations right now and straying away from the term prop master just because of the, uh, just because the use of that term, which we can talk about later, but, uh, you know, prop designer, supervisor, prop person is usually what I say, but that job used to kind of mostly fall under the scenic designer. So a lot of the scenic designers who have been around for a while are, are very into talking about the props as well, because they used to be the ones that would have to to do them also. So I think it probably sometime in the nineties, I would say, and it's not the same for movies, but I know a lot of the, the older prop masters that have been around, you know, talked about kind of making that climb and distinguishing themselves and kind of separating themselves from doing set stuff into doing props because it, it has now become such a, such a specialized thing that there is a separate person for it now, but formerly it used to be really under the umbrella of set design. So there are some things st- that get that that are a little bit of a bridge you know like if you've all of the furniture is definitely going to be a prop um I always like to use this example if because it's something easy for people to think of if you think of your kitchen right okay everything that's not the walls and everything that's not the built-in light fixtures essentially is a prop the only thing that might not be are the cabinets. And that's because that's a lot of insulation to do. So you probably would get your walls, your cabinets, and your flooring from the set designer or from the, from, you know, sets. And then you'd get your built-in fixtures, your lights, your recess lighting or anything like that from electrics. And then everything else that makes your kitchen, your kitchen, which are all the good things like your furniture and the food and the fridge and the stock shelves. Uh, that's all props. You know, sometimes uh, even the sink, generally, I I have had to go out and buy the sink and have set install it for me, but it's still a specific look. So things like that even fall onto our plate. How to make the sink function, that would be like a set thing. Um, So, I mean, everything, plates, magnets, plants in your kitchen, soap dispensers, uh, curtains in the windows, all of those things that that give your kitchen character like that that's props so that's a lot of stuff yeah that's uh, as you just said it's a lot of character it's a lot of aesthetic so how do you balance your artistic vision that you have as a as a props director with like the input 
that costumes has the input that the set folks have the input that the director is, is is giving you like how much do you actually get to personalize all of this that's a very good question um again it's it's very subjective sometimes sometimes d- directors and set designers uh will just say this is what i'm looking for go and run and then you kind of get to in in that sense what you would do as a prop person is really look at your characters, really go back to your script analysis, really go back to like who these people are, how much money they have, what part of the country they live in or what country they live in, um, what the time period is. Like you go into that deep dive of figuring out who these people are. And then from there, do your research as to what types of things would these people have, you know? So someone who you know, now I'm just like going through all the shows I've done, but like someone who lives in Atlanta in the 1950s in an affluent neighborhood is going to have a much, much different uh, apartment or house or aesthetic than someone who lives in a housing project in New York in the 1980s, you know? So like those things are going to, they're going to look different and you want to make sure you're not pulling something that makes those characters feel completely inauthentic to people, you know? Um, And if you don't know the answer to those things, like that's when research is really big, you know, like it's, it is okay not to know what those homes look like and what that would look like, but it's not okay to not seek out that answer from people who would know or by doing your research, you know? So that's kind of um, when it gets, when we get to put in our own personal kind of like flair onto it or research or kind of thing like that. Sometimes, directors and and scenic designers have very, very intense opinions on what it should be. And so in that sense, then you go from being kind of the one who's like finding all the stuff to being a a big collaborator. And, you know, if your director, your actor saying, or your, um, or your designer saying, I want something very specific. I want the table to look like this. I want the veneer to be this. I want to make sure that this calendar you know, would have this, this, and that on it, you know, that's when you, that's when you are kind of like a, a, a seeker, not to bring it, you know, like you seek out these things and you bring them back and you're, you're hunter, hunter gatherer, you're like finding these things or taking pictures and really collaborating with the scenic designer to see if that's like something that they were envisioning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really can go both ways and it can really go along that spectrum too. It just, it, it all depends on the, on the, uh, connection that you make with your scenic designer and and the conversations you have with them and just how how involved they want to be in in specific things um so you just have to be really good any regardless of what you do in props you have to be very very good at listening very good at collaborating uh and unafraid to ask questions and that could be the hardest part but hopefully nobody ever treats you like your question is stupid because at the end of the day, there, there really is no question that's stupid when it comes to building a show. You know, there's so many little things. I mean, I've had conversations with people on what kind of finial would be on the staircase or what, what should the end of this table leg be like? And I mean like 30 minute conversations on stuff like that. So you can get very intense uh, and detailed on, on stuff. And that takes, that takes asking questions and conversation and collaborating. But it's so worth doing because all those little details, I mean, those are what really bring the show to life and, and 
make them feel like real lived in portrayals of whatever it is that you are producing. Right. So you, you kind of uh, mentioned it in passing a little bit, but there are different sort of levels of property work. And I'm wondering if you can give us sort of a, a basic rundown of what all the different properties roles are and, and how they function in an overall show. Okay. Uh, so you've got, so in, in the prop structure, you have a few different roles. You've got your prop supervisor or, uh, you know, formerly what we were saying as prop master or props director. Those can also mean um, slightly different things, especially when you start getting into film and stuff like that too. Um, I think in film, a prop master does just the hand props. And then, you know, you have like your set decorator, you, you have part of art department, but that's different. We're not talking about that. Um, so you have your prop supervisor or prop director. They're the person that is uh, talking directly with the designer. They're talking to the director. They're, they're, you know, in, in rehearsal rooms when we need someone to be in there to talk to actors about how to use a prop. Um, that's another thing too, that's part of our jobs is if there is something to teach an actor to do, that's generally the prop supervisor's job. Um, so they're the ones that are kind of the face of the department, getting the notes every night from what they need in rehearsal. Uh, if they have a team, they're delegating all of that work to the team, but they are the ones that are managing their budget, coming up with a prop list, coming up with a timeline. They're like the, the leader at the top. And then you've got your assistant prop director, designer, master, whatever. Um, and they're the second, you know, right-hand person to the, the supervisor. And so that's the role I'm most comfortable, most familiar with. That's the role I was put in most, um, which was a really, really great place to be because um, I, I love the support, that support role of being able to take off some of the weight from the person who was in charge because they were dealing with a lot of other things like budget and stuff like that, that I would be clued into and talk about, but was able to kind of um, maybe be the person in the shop that was able to delegate work to the other artisans, you know, and then do some of have some of that internal knowledge of the show to do shopping and to make decisions on behalf of the prop supervisor. Um, so that's, that's a really fun role to be in. So you're kind of like the right, right hand person. And then you've got your prop artisans, which could be, you know, your crafter, your, uh, your prop carpenter, your prop shopper. So these are all kind of the other support support roles sometimes they are very split up in that way. Like there are some theaters that have someone who just does the shopping, someone who just does the carpentry, someone who just does, you know, artisan work, which is crafting, casting and mold making, carving foam, all of that kind of more crafty things. Um, and then some places you just call them artisans because they do all of it. Mm -hmm. So like at Signature, for example, you know, there'd be one day we'd have to go shopping for flowers in the floral district. The next day we're building a couple boxes for rehearsal. And then another day that we're, you know, carving fake meat out of foam, you know, so you, you have to be able to do all of it. And then adjacent to those people are your prop runners. So your prop runners are, are the people who are actually uh, on the show every night, running the show, 
maintaining the props for the show run, setting food, letting the prop supervisor and assistant know in the notes, like, hey, we're running out of chocolate sauce for the scene. You know, can you buy me more? Can you order me more? Or I need a couple backups of uh, the love letter uh, because we're running out of those. So if someone could, you know, make me enough for the whole show run, like a hundred of those or something like that. I would say that's, that's pretty much like, you know, your whole on the prop side of, of like the people you have. And then obviously there are other, there are other roles that affect props. Like we were saying, like you've got your set designer, that's going to affect your props. You've got your ASM. So in some places, the assistant ASM is assistant stage manager. So in some places, the assistant stage manager is running props, um, depending on your show. So if you are afforded the whole gamut of people, that's generally who you have. You know, if you've got a big team, some teams are, are very are a lot smaller and they fulfill multiple roles. But that's that's basically all of the different roles you could have. So now I'm curious to know how you landed in this very particular and, and fascinating line of work. Cause like, as I mentioned at the beginning, I, I know you from school and I think by the time I, I met you, you were pretty firmly on the, the property's path, but I'm, I'm curious to know how you arrived in, in that place. Um, okay. So I used to do, this is such a whew, history. So I was doing theater in high school, like, you know, like one of those, I wasn't like full glee, but <laughs> I was, we were definitely, I was a, I was a high school theater kid. Um, and we really, we very much, we thought we were cute by distinguishing ourselves as theater kids and not drama kids. Um, because, you know, the drama kids were the glee kids, like they were annoying and into like they were too much. And the theater kids, we were all very like serious about the craft. Um, but I went to a really good theater program in Orlando, Florida at Dr. Phillips High School. Uh, it was part of a magnet. And um, that was such a great experience because I had a class that I was with for all four years. Um, obviously, there are some people that came and went, but uh, we learned a lot. And our teacher, Mr. Gario, was... I always say that she's probably, she is probably like the person in my life that made the most, that steered me in a direction that now it is vastly different from what it could have been. Like she just nudged me ever so slightly in one way that now I can really think of like so much of what I have in my life is because of that nudge. Like, and, and that actually, that thought came from a show, my very first show at Signature, that was called Wakey Wakey by Will Eno. And they mentioned that they, they make you, you know, there's a part of the show where the actor on stage is asking you to think about, you know, who's that person that nudged you ever so slightly. So the tra trajectory of your life is different, vastly different from what it would have been. And that is Mr. Vario to me. And mostly it's because she, you know, there were a lot of kids at my school that were very, they were pretty wealthy. And there were some kids that were not as wealthy, but, you know, wanted to work really hard and, and be there too. And she, she treated us all the same. Um, and that's kind of what I felt from her was that there wasn't anything I couldn't do. There wasn't anything I couldn't do, especially like regard, regardless of my circumstances, I could get there. It would mean I'd have to work a lot harder than these, some kids or have some more like 
things to overcome, but she never made it feel like, well, this is, this is as far as you could go, or that's enough for you, which, which can sometimes happen. I feel like, especially when you're like a kid of color, you know, people kind of are like, this is good enough. She was like, no, you're going to do this all the way. And it's going to be tough. And I'm going to be really tough on you, but like the world, like you can do this, this kind of thing. And so um, a couple of the kids from that school went to UNCSA, which is where we met in North Carolina. And um, I was like, yeah, I, I'll try. I want to go too. Um, and she, she was a big advocate for me, like going there. I'm, I'm curious, did you look at other schools other than UNCSA or was that kind of the one? So I did look at other schools. Actually, my top school for the longest time was DePaul University in Chicago. Uh, mm-hmm. Why? I have no idea. I cannot remember why I was like so attached to DePaul. Um, and I love Chicago. I've been there multiple times like since. And um, I actually did all my college auditions in Chicago because mm. there's a, a, a thing called Unifieds. Uh, which are basically where you can go to one city and do your auditions for school. So there was one in New York that the rest of my class went to. And then there was one in Chicago that uh, me and a few of my best friends ended up going to just because of the timing. And I actually had probably the worst flu of my life Oh no! during it was bad. I remember it was like the weekend I was supposed to go and I was in bed and my mom was like, I just have to nurse you back to health the best I can because you have to go. And I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. And so she, you know, wonderful Hispanic mother, Sana de Sana. She was doing all of her, all of her rituals and vapor rub and giving me soup. All her rituals are really just the normal things like giving you medicine and soup, but there's something magical about it when it's like your Hispanic mother. Um, you know, and she was giving me, you know, my antibiotics and stuff like that. And then by Monday I was well enough to get out of bed. And so then I got ready, got on a plane, went to Chicago and then it was a blizzard (laughs) when we were there. So I was like, what's going on? So we were, you know, I was probably like, I think at that time I was already, I was either 17 about to turn 18 or I was 18. And so my friends and I are like running around Chicago as babies, um, you know, playing in the snow a little bit and trying to get to all of our auditions and, you know, sticking together to make sure we don't get lost and everything. And I visited DePaul and it was pretty cool. But I remember being very disappointed because I wanted to go for scenic design. That was my initial, that was my actual first major. I wanted to go for scenic design. And the design teacher was like, I don't know if this is for you. Why don't you look at theater tech? And which was a very, very, actually probably very informed decision on his part because I didn't know how to draw at all. Um, And so that's like part of the job. So he, he, you know, he was trying to make a kind of a better choice. And and I just didn't want to do theater tech. I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a technician. I want to be a designer. Um, And so at that same unified auditions, I had an interview with UNCSA and the person I interviewed was actually one of the costume teachers. His name was Bill Brewer, who is such a lovely person. And I just remember he looked over my portfolio and we had like a very like calm, quiet interview. And he was looking at some of my drawings, which were really, really shitty drawings, very (laughs) shitty. But he 
was sitting there and talking to me about them as if I was understanding the concepts of what he was talking about drawing, like about perspective and about line weight and about, you know, shadows and about 3D. And like, it just, the way he made me feel is that he made me feel like, even though I wasn't, my skills weren't there yet, it was a possibility. Like I, like he was speaking to me in such a way that made me feel like I was intelligent and that I was able to get there someday. And that changed my perspective almost immediately. I was just like, this, this is where I want to go. If this is the type of education I'm going to get, if I'm going to get a chance, like I, I already know, like, I don't know how to draw. Like I didn't learn how to draw. I didn't go to an art class or anything like that, but he just made me feel like it would be a possibility for me and that I could get there and that I could succeed. And that made me just want to go that put it to my number one. So then I got in, I got into the school and the whole time I was there, I would like once in a while, would just kind of stop by his office and, you know, talk to him and stuff. Cause he's the reason why, why I got in, which was, which was really cool. So then it went to my number one. I visited, I visited UNCSA probably later that year. And then I was really, uh, really sold. I was like, okay, this is definitely where I want to go. Um, so that's how I ended up at the school. Uh, and then once I got there, you know, I did my first year, which is pretty general. Everyone takes the same classes, color and design, drawing one, um, your, you have your core classes, stuff like that. Um, and then I got to my second year of doing scenic design and I like, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I hated it. I learned a lot. I did, we did rendering, we did stuff, drawing again, uh, scenic design one, like stuff that I had never encountered before, but I felt incredibly lonely doing scenic design. I, mm. I would be in, in the studio with some of my friends who are still some of my best friends today, but it just felt like such a lonely job. And I had a rotation in the prop uh, shop and I just remember loving that kind of more collaborative more team effort kind of feeling. Um, and I also realized that even though I didn't want to be a technician, there was a part of that that I loved, which was the physical building of stuff, mm -hmm. like physically making a chair, physically making a box or anything like that. Like that was the part of it that I really loved and that I was missing. And that's when I realized that scenic design probably wasn't for me because I didn't want to make tiny chairs and theoretical things. And that really wasn't who I was. I was really more of a get in the shop, make the thing, you know, help the designer figure out, well, then maybe that's not what you want. Maybe we needed to work like this, doing all the troubleshooting and problem solving. And then also working with other people that I get to like put on some shop jams and like work along with and cut up a bunch of wood and stuff like that's more of who I was. So that's how I ended up in props. Um, and also one of my friends who was going to the school as a grad student who now um, works at the school, Chris Julio was constantly like, so when are you going to switch? When are you going to join props? When are you going to come? And eventually I was like, you're right. You whittled me down. I'm, I'm switching majors. So that's the long, the long version of the long story. <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, I think it's, it is really, I think I feel similarly to you in that, uh, it's nice to be actually making things and to be practically hands-on working in that way as opposed to the more theoretical 
realm of things, which is lovely and great, but different. Yeah, much different. And, and I really do praise the people who can do it and they're really good at it. Like some of the people who came out of my class or even some of the classes, uh, but not beneath me, but after me, Mm -hmm. um, they are fabulous. Like they are just wonderful designers and make beautiful things and just have a, just, I mean, I can even tell by their personalities but that's not who I am. Like they've got the personality to like sit there and think and draw and all this stuff. And I'm like, no, I'm loud and I want to build the thing and I want to, you know, <laughs> solve the problem and make things pop and blow up and, you know, spew out glitter and stuff like that. Like that's, that's me. <laughs> so I, what was the transition from school out into the, the real theater world like? How did that go for you? I was really lucky that one of my friends clued me into probably one of the, 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 the biggest bridges between school and professional or it was an internship for me, um, which is like for most people, that's kind of the role of internships in general. Um, so one of my friends, uh, my friend, Emily, she had done an internship at the public theater a few years or a year before I before we met because she was a transfer student from SUNY. Um, I felt like a transfer student because I transferred to props in my, for my third year, which mean I had to do in that third year, I had to do like two years worth of work in that third year to patch up. Um, so we were in a very similar boat and she told me about the internship at the public theater. Uh, and I applied for it. I had, I, I had never even heard of the public in my life at that point. I was like, I don't know who this is. I, uh, I started looking them up and I was like, oh, cool. Well, this is like a really big theater in New York. Uh, they're famous for doing a chorus line. So I was like, that's cool. I love that musical. Like what a great musical. And so I applied for the internship and I had an interview with, uh, did I have an interview with Jay? At the time, the prop master there was Jay Duckworth. And um, the uh, one of the other supervisors was Sarah Swanberg. They both have like Swan and Duck. It's kind of cool. Um, and then the shop foreman or foreperson uh, was Rebecca. And she was an intern she was an intern there too. So she's kind of like the success story. She was an intern turned, you know, real human at, at the theater. So that was pretty <laughs> cool. So I can't remember who I had my interview with right now, but cause it was a few years ago, but I had an interview with them and uh, I think it went well, cause I got it. So <laughs> Seems reasonable. Um, yeah. So then uh, from that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to save up all my money to go to New York this summer. Cause at the time it was, I think it only paid uh, $25 a day, which is kind of crazy, which is definitely one of the things that I think people have uh, started talking about. I, I'm sure it's a little bit better now. I, I'm not sure if they get paid minimum wage now or something, but it's much, much better, which makes me really happy for the kids who don't have money to be able to get that opportunity. Um, when I did it though, I, that's how much we were get, getting paid. Um, and knowing that I was like, I'm just going to try to save up as much money as I can from now until then. 
I lived with my godmother in Yonkers, which is a little bit up, uh, not upstate, but just a little bit out of the city limits. So I'd take like a, I'd take a train to a train to get to work, which was totally worth it. And uh, I did an internship that whole summer, which was so great and got to work with so many people off the bat. I mean, like people that first summer, I think one of the shows we did was King Lear and like John Lithgow was King Lear. And I'm like a 21 year old kid, like standing, like I remember standing next to John Lithgow and he like huge and looks down at me and he was like, how are you doing? And I was like, oh my God, like I couldn't think of anything else. I was like, I had to do something. So I like, I like put my arm around his like back or something, or I touched his elbow and he put his arm around my shoulder. And I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> this is so great. Like, and then, and then later on in that production, I was giving out ice cream to all the prop people and he saw me and he like looked at me and was like, can I have an ice cream bar? And I was about to give it to him. And then I, in my very Jessica way of being like, wait a second, are you going to get me in trouble if I give you some ice cream? And he was like, no, I promise I'll finish it before I go on stage. And I was like, okay. So I gave him one. And then when I came back around, he was like, see, I finished it. But like, what? Like who, like to (laughs) me at that time, I was like, why am I having this interaction with like a famous person? But that's like what the public is, you know, like you're just orbiting around all of this, like great talent, whether it's like the actors or the, production staff or you know anybody and and, I mean some of the designer one of the first designers I worked there with was John Lee Beatty and he's like a very 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 famous scenic designer who would take the time to teach us how to age things like he's kind of the one I was thinking about when I was talking about designers who back in the day we're doing all like a lot of their own props. Like he's definitely one of the people who is that person and would, you know, come to come to uh, our builds in a perfect crisp button up shirt, white button up shirt with his sleeves up and never get a drop of paint on him. It was so impressive, but he would be there teaching us how to do stuff. And I mean, just being around, just being around all of that was so inspiring and so otherworldly to me because I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm living someone else's life. Like this should not, this is not the life that I was born into, but it was a life that was like made possible by being able to be in all these places. And, you know, I'm so grateful for that. But um, once I graduated, I, Uh, I can't remember. I'm pretty sure uh, Sarah from the public reached out to me and was like, Hey, do you want to like come work on this show? And it was like, so great that I knew her, you know, through that internship or she knew me through whatever. And then that's kind of how that bridge started. So I was able to secure some work there. Um, And that was pretty much the bulk of all my work for the first year that I was in New York as a, as a grown up, um, was working at the public and working on a bunch of shows as an artisan or as an assistant to Jay and just getting all of that experience in. And from there, eventually, um, actually one of the assistant prop people I worked with when I was an intern was Cassie Dorland and she was a prop master at Signature. So really all of my connections kind of were were from the public. And so then eventually I started working with Cassie when she started working at Signature Theater. And then that became my home for a while. And I made a lovely group of friends that I 
adore. And, you know, so that's kind of how it all happened was really came from that internship that I was introduced to New York theater. And then luckily from there, I was able to kind of build on, on all of those relationships and got the opportunity from all those people to kind of work in all these places. So really awesome. It's very, very cool to hear. And I'm, I'm very thankful that you were able to, uh, have all those experiences at the public because thanks to you, I was able to see a couple of shows for Shakespeare in the park some summer and those yeah. are still <laughs> some of the best shows that I've ever seen. Really just awesome work that you guys do and did there. And such a special New York thing too. Like Shakespeare oh, in the yeah. park is such a like unique, like such an iconic New York thing to do. And it was like the first thing I did when I got there, which was crazy. I mean, like my biggest dream the only the, the highest dream I could think of getting to when I was in school was doing a midst uh, a, a midsummer night's dream in the park. I was like, this is my dream. This is my dream of dreams. And I did that when I was 24. And then ever since then, I've been like, what's my new dream? I, I achieved my goal too fast. Like, what do I do now? So well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John, or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.